Our help is in the name of the Lord, who made heaven and earth. Welcome back, everybody, to our study of the Evergatinos. And tonight we are picking up on page 165, number three, from Abba Cassian. And uh, if you remember, we're on Hypothesis 20, and we've been talking a good while about uh, the revealing of one's thoughts to one's confessor, confidant, elder, and not having shame or an experience of embarrassment preventing one from acknowledging the things that we are struggling with. And we've come across some really beautiful stories throughout these texts of individuals who, you know, once they were able to let go of that feeling of shame and actually be able to acknowledge what they were struggling with, uh, not only to feel greater freedom from the passion that they were struggling with, but to receive this gentle and loving counsel from their, from their elder. Uh, that gave them hope and courage to continue forward in the spiritual battle. And if you remember last time, also, uh, I'd mentioned that this hypothesis is intimately linked with 21, uh, which discusses the importance of, of not doing this indiscriminately, that one would want to have a confessor, elder, confidant, who uh, shows great discretion and uh, has the ability to discern real very well what is going on in a person's mind and heart so that they can offer uh, good counsel. And we've talked last time a little bit about the number of saints over the centuries who have talked about how much damage they experienced uh, by bad counsel that they had received. And so we would really want to spend a good deal of time seeking for someone, uh, again, not only who we can entrust ourselves to uh, as a confidant, uh, but uh, also that we can trust their, their counsel. So again, number three on page 165. Now, from all that has been said, we learn that no other way of salvation exists, save that we confess thoughts to the fathers and do not sustain the tradition of our forefathers that our forefathers, not prompted by their own opinions, but enlightened by God and rooted in divine, divinely inspired scriptures, have directed us, their descendants, to consult those who have progressed in asceticism. We also learn from many texts in Holy Scripture, especially from the story of the prophet Samuel. So this is something that has been passed down from generation to generation. And in this sense, you know, I think the, the church itself is conservative in the sense of preserving and conserving tradition and passing that on. Uh, it's not as though we don't need in each generation, I think, to find ways to articulate things well for the people of our time and the realities that we face. Uh, but we rely upon the wisdom of our forefathers, of those who have uh, through experience, gain wisdom, you know, both through the study of scripture, but also the fathers and have passed that on, on to us. And I, I think over the course of these years, we've seen the truth of this, that they're, uh, what we've received from uh, reading the fathers, whether it's Climacus or Cassian or Isaac, it's, it's uh, enormously valuable for our day-to-day -day struggles in the spiritual life. Uh, he be begins by bringing up uh, the prophet Samuel. And uh, Samuel's a wonderful prophet for a lot of different reasons, but here in particular showing his humility, even though divinely uh, inspired and called by God. The prophet Samuel, as we know, was dedicated to God by his mother when he was still an infant. When he was made worthy to hear the voice of God, he did not trust his thoughts but being called by God once and then two times more, two more times, turned to the elder Eli and through his teaching, learned the way in which he was to answer God. Indeed, even one whom God directly called is worthy of him. God himself wished to be taught by his elder in order to be led by his elder in humility. So even one of the great prophets, Cassian tells us here, uh, even though he had heard directly God calling him, did not trust what was taking place within his, within his life, that uh, with humility, he seeks out the guidance uh, of, of his, his elder, Eli, in order to know how to respond to this call or even to respond to it at all. 
that uh, the evil one often can put things before us, uh, can appear to us as an angel of light. And, and so we have to be ever so discerning and uh, seek the counsel of others whenever an experience such as this would happen. And as we will see uh, in the writings ahead of us here, that it's important really in our day-to-day thoughts, emotions, inspirations, that we are willing to put those to the test, no matter how good or true they might seem to be. Number four. And even St. Paul, despite the fact that Christ himself had called him and spoken spoken with him and could have immediately opened his eyes and shown him the way of perfection, God sent to Ananias, leaving him to learn from Ananias the way of truth, saying to him, Arise and go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. In this way, the Lord teaches us that we should follow the instructions of those who have progressed in the spiritual life. Having been taught this, the apostle himself realized it in his deeds, thus describing himself, saying, I went up again to Jerusalem to see Peter and James, and communicated unto them the gospel which I preach, lest by any means I should run or had run in vain. O the chosen vessel, he who ascended unto the third heaven and heard from God himself words which one cannot express in normal language, he who is always accompanied by the grace of the Spirit and who confirmed the word of his teaching by the miracles which he performed, He admits that he had need of the counsel of those apostles who had preceded him in the apostolic office. So, you know, Paul was, you know, a very strong-willed individual, as we know, and uh, a very confident preacher, bold preacher of the faith, and witness to the faith, even to the point of great suffering. Uh, But after even having heard directly from the Lord is sent to Ananias, you know, one who had an experience of the church, its beginnings, who could guide and direct Paul and help him to understand the revelation that he had received. And actually, Paul, was it three years? Somebody confirmed that for, I think it's for for three years uh, that he had sort of engaged in the study of scripture, engage of, engagement of the community about the faith uh, before beginning any uh, active kind of uh, ministry or missionary work. And often that's overlooked, you know, that there was this period of time where Paul was being instructed himself and certainly through his prayer and his study of scriptures in order that he might more fully bear witness to God. Who then is so presumptuous and proud that he does not tremble when he hears such things or does not fear to follow his own opinion as he would fear the Gehenna of fire and unending punishment? This is so because the Lord reveals to no one the way of perfection except only if he be guided to it by the counsel and assistance of a spiritual father. For this reason, God commands us through his prophet saying, Ask thy father, and he will show thee, thy elders, and they will tell thee. So, in a number of times in in the group, we've talked about not being Christians in isolation, and that we aren't an island, and it isn't simply an individualistic uh, kind of relationship between ourselves and Christ. It certainly is that, but we're also part of the body of Christ, the church, and we don't travel the spiritual life on our own and, and unguided by another who has more experience than, than ourselves. Uh, often it is the blind leading the blind or simply our walking on our own uh, with the kind of self-assured mentality. That if we pick up a spiritual book or the scriptures, that that suddenly means that we uh, know all the things that we are going to face in the, in the spiritual life. And I think on any given day, if we were aware of where our thoughts go and the kinds of thoughts that we have, if we were to expose those to an elder as freely as we hear in some of these writings, we would be surprised where our our thoughts take us. And often 
uh, not you know certainly good thoughts as well, uh, ideas, but also uh, sometimes the malice, the anger that can arise within us, and the things that we can linger in. And it's you know then when we become aware of this, we see the the value of freely bringing these to the light, and we know that that's not easy. And all the stories that we've heard up to this point, and that we will hear in the coming paragraphs. Uh, just show us how difficult it is, that there's often a kind of embarrassment or feeling of shame that we can have in freely acknowledging these things. And the, the beautiful thing about the next uh, hypothesis is that it gives very firm direction to those who have people in their care to be ever so gentle and not to make it uh, sound as though that they've never experienced these struggles in their own life, never to be condemning or harsh in any way, but always to apply, as it were, you know, the balm of God's mercy and gentleness and tenderness. And, uh, but I think when, on a day-to-day -day basis, when it comes to actually doing that, shame is something that holds us back. Any thoughts or questions up to this point? So pretty much what we've looked at so far and from last time. Letter G from Abba Barsanufius. Miran, Sarah, here's a good name for your, your boy. He's going to be born next week. <laughs> a brother questioned an elder saying, I was sent into the holy city in the service of the monastic community and took this occasion to go to the Jordan to pray without, however, asking permission for this from the Abba. Did I do, do well or not? The elder answered him, without permission, you should never go anywhere because that which we do according to the inspiration of our own thoughts, even if it seem good, is not pleasing to God. To observe the command of your Abba who sent you on this task, this is both prayer and service. To God who said, I did not come to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And, you know, it might seem odd, this idea of asking for permission. And I remember visiting the London Oratory at one point and being struck uh, by the, I was, a novice was taking me out around the city to show me around the city. Uh, but before we did so, we went into one of the uh, older fathers in order for him to receive a blessing before going out and uh, being able to tell the senior father where he was going. And uh, certainly within a religious community, there's kind of wisdom about that. And uh, I think parents do this and expect this all the time, you know, to know where their, their children are going and to be able to provide a blessing for that or a word of caution. And so this monk is told very clearly that, you know, what you did uh, was not a good thing to do, that the seeking permission, the humbling of oneself before one's elder uh, become, uh, then makes what you do become both prayer and service to God, that it increases the value of what one does, as well as keeping one from simply following one's own will or being led by the evil one down a particular path. And so it's not meant to be infantilizing. And I think we pick this up again in the next hypothesis. It's meant to help us understand that we are engaged in a spiritual battle. And it's those with experience and discretion, discernment, that can pick up the, the movement of the minds and the hearts of those in their care. Again, you know, I think when we simply look at the image of a parent, you know, they know their children very well, they can often tell by their body language, you know, their silence or what they're saying and how they're saying it, what's going on in their, their mind and where they need to ask questions. And, uh, and so it would be the same would, would be true for a spiritual father, that there would be this closeness and intimacy and care uh, in order to protect the, the mind and heart of the one in this charge. And uh, I think, uh, again, you know, the next hypothesis will show us, you know, that this is not meant to crush personality, 
is not meant to be infantilizing, where you know an elder is simply controlling or belittling one in his care, uh, you know, humbling in the sense of breaking them down. It's the real. It's really meant. It's part of his responsibility uh, and of his love for the one in his care to be able to, to do these things. And so they should be done in a certain way, not just in accord with his own whim or his own poor judgment. The brother again asked the elder, if I go off on a task and go a long way from my country, but have neglected to ask my Abba where I should stay, what should I do? The elder answered, it's sort of interesting. It is almost like a child. Well, what if I find myself really far away? And what am I supposed to do then? Should I trust my judgment then? Or should I run all the way, you know, go all the way back home? Uh, the elder answered, you must be careful in anything that you encounter, and you must perform everything for the benefit of your soul. But you must act with the understanding that you are transgressing a commandment, and not that you are doing well, for you have dared to do something without specific permission. When you act in this way, let your Abba be informed that he may forgive you. So, you know, as we saw in the previous paragraph, that behind this is the imitation of Christ. Uh, I did not come to do my own will, but the will of my father. And, uh, and so what, what this young monk is doing is there's a breaking of a commandment there. He's being disobedient uh, to the one who's been placed in charge of him. And regardless of the fact if he's far away from home or close to home, or it seems to be good, he still has done something that is sinful and willful. And he, his response to this, even if he should find himself in these circumstances where he is far away, when he returns to his Abba, he must openly acknowledge it and seek forgiveness for it. Again, you know, and again, part of this is simply bringing it to the light in order that it might be healed uh, to ask, you know, forgive me. What I did uh, was, you know, I took things into my own hands and I did my own will. Because, you know, a young monk eventually is going to be tested more and more in the spiritual life, is going to be tempted by the evil one, uh, is going to be under, undergo trial within the uh, common life as well in its day-to-day spiritual life. And so having formed a heart that is obedient to God through being obedient to his elder is then going to help him persevere in the spiritual life when he, he does undergo trial, to be obedient to God and to put the will of God above all things. And so the elder tells him, you must be careful in anything that you encounter, and you must perform everything for the benefit of your soul. Well, if, we, if we would only hold on even to that one thought, that we would consider whether what we're doing, large or small, in any given moment, if this is something for the benefit of our soul, is this going to bear fruit for us? Or are we simply you know, being neglectful or wasting time or, you know, focused upon ourselves or entertaining ourselves or is what we are doing something that is going to be enriching to the mind and heart or leading us to fulfill the will of God for us on a given day. In some of the past groups, we talked a little bit about in many monasteries, how they'll, they'll describe their daily duties as obedience. You know, I'm performing, you know, my obedience for, for the day. And I think for all of us, that's uh, an interesting way of looking at our day-to-day -day life, that we're not just fulfilling these disconnected tasks, but what God has given to us in any given particular moment. And in our particular station in life, we should want to take it up as an act of obedience to God and fulfill it with as much love, generosity, uh, zeal as we can. And so, you know, whether it's our day-to-day -day job or a job for our family or care of a home or uh, you know, even the, the more uh, menial duties that we perhaps do on a day-to-day -day basis, that we would, we would take that up as obedience, fulfilling the will of God. 
And, you know, it prevents us from, you know, falling into this sense that there's no meaning to certain uh, things in our life or that God has placed before us, or, or uh, it prevents us from having an unwillingness to do, you know, the, these things that are, you know, uh, don't satisfy us uh, on an emotional level. It's never a great thing to have to clean a go to the bathroom or take out the garbage. But I think if we see that as in that moment is something that God has given us. And if we do that with love and, you know, with sort of a kind of joyful demeanor, you know, then that is seen by God who sees, looks into the heart. And I think this is what the, the fathers show us so well. Okay. Any thoughts or comments so far? Okay. Again, the brother asks, what is false knowledge? Seems like a non sequitur at the, the, at the moment. Uh, so uh, just hold on while the uh, elder asks, answers him. False knowledge is for someone to trust in his own reason and to imagine that things are the way he thinks they are. If one wishes to be released from this false knowledge, let him not have trust in his thoughts or consider them good. Let him say to himself, I am being mocked by the demons so that I will believe in my mind that somehow my knowledge is correct and true and thus avoid asking the elders. In this way, the demons are leading me astray and yet other and to yet other heirs. Now, my elder speaks the truth since he is enlightened by God to speak and is not in any way a plaything of the demons. My thought, however, is silliness and mockery. And so, you know, to take every thought captive, acknowledging the fact that we are often being guided by this false knowledge, that which uh, we only judge by our own uh, experience of it, our own reason, our own opinion, and without examining it. And, and bringing it to, to the light. And, you know, the, an elder who has experiential knowledge would be doing this as a matter of course, that he would fear above all things his own opinion, knowing the, the wiles of the evil one. Uh, and the devil never rests, as we've talked about many times before, and it constantly at war with us. Uh, I've come across a little book recently called Diabolic Wars. I think I might have mentioned it in one of the groups last week uh, by Pope Shenouda III, who's the Coptic Pope. Uh, and um, uh, just, you know, a very holy soul, brilliant writer. Uh, but, but he talks about this, that the evil one is constantly at war with us. And there is this knowledge of our patterns of life, the way that we think, the way that we talk about things, the way that we engage in the spiritual life. And so, you know, he can use us or our own thoughts, others to, to get us twisted up in our own thoughts and ideas uh, until we are going down a path that is contrary to the will of God. And... Again, it takes humility to be able to acknowledge this, you know, because I think there's something in our culture that is constantly pushing towards this kind of self-esteem, you know, and uh, that we've often talked about, you know, the self-made man, self-made woman, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, you know, uh, and in the spiritual life, though, and understanding that we are engaged in a spiritual warfare, that the war, we have to understand that the warfare is not won, you know, simply by our own will or our own judgment, and even by our own experience, that it is by the grace of God and by the care and the support of others, and often through the prayers of others. And so uh, I was reading the, the second hypothesis here earlier today, and it talks about those who struggle uh, with the thoughts of fornication and about the run, leaving them, running away from them, or going to one's elder to acknowledge them. And Philip Neary had this thing, you know, in the, the struggle 
uh, for purity, the coward is the victor. You know, one who doesn't wait around for his thoughts to carry him in a certain direction or wait around in a situation that is going to put him to the test. And in a similar way, I think on a day-to-day basis, when we're engaged in this spiritual warfare, it may seem like a coward's path, you know, to so willingly put our thoughts before others or to seek the counsel of others, especially when there are decisions or actions that are of greater weight. But the cowards are often the victors, those who don't trust in their own strength or even their own experience of the prayer life or or the fact that perhaps they have not been bothered by a particular passion, even for years or decades, that they always will bring these to, to their elders in order to see where they're, they're coming from. Because even one who has great experience in the spiritual life does not see all ends or what's going, you know, going on or, or what, what the devil is doing. You know, often the evil one can be very patient and even allow certain virtues to emerge or allow us to, to have the sense that we're growing in the spiritual life if he feels that a greater fall can be brought about at a later time. Ambrose Little. Ambrose writes, seems like it's less a question of whether this or that father is particularly learned, but that God wants us to seek the guidance of others as an expression of humility. And so through that will guide us. We may or may not get a wise answer, but the actual experience of that humility is in itself instructive and the spirit will teach us through that. Yeah, you know, I think that's been my sense of reading too. You know, it is emphasized in the next hypothesis about the importance of having uh, an elder that has discretion so that we do receive good counsel and we aren't led astray. But the, the sort of line of thought that runs through all of these stories that the moment that there is this humbling of oneself letting go of the feeling of shame or embarrassment, that healing begins, that there's uh, the action of God's grace begins to take place in a person's life. And, uh, and so I think you're, it, what you wrote is really well put here, that the expression of humility, uh, the, not so much the wise answer, uh, that the spirit both would guide the elder as well as guide us when we bring that into the light of the truth. And, uh, and this is why I think we would want to foster this kind of spirit in our lives, you know, that we want to use, uh, you know, that feeling of shame to bring us to a place where we acknowledge it freely and not hide it from ourselves or others in order to conquer it and uh, allow it to bring us to the place that we, we need to be. And, uh, you know, those feelings often tell us something important and we shouldn't be embarrassed about acknowledging them. We should be embarrassed about following them and then committing the, the deed that they lead us to. And because it's the freedom from the shame that then brings the healing for us. Okay. Any other thoughts before we move on? Okay. So from the Gerontcon. A brother struggled for some time with the demon fornication, and though he labored a great deal, was unable to find release from it. One day, while he was standing amidst the gathered monks, he felt himself once again bothered by this passion. So he decided to reveal his trial with the demon to the brothers and to ask them to pray for him. And so that God might perhaps be compassionate and relieve him somewhat from the passion. Therefore, without any thought of embarrassment, which he completely ignored, he bared himself by his confession before all the brothers and denounced the energy of Satan, saying, pray for me, fathers and brothers, because for 14 years I have fought in this manner. And immediately, oh, the wonder, the warfare of immorality left from him, owing to the humility which he had shown. 
which brings us back to Ambrose point and his, his comment that he embraces this path of humility in a radical way. You know, think about it, you know, struggling with something for 14 years and something that would be embarrassing. And he acknowledges it in front of the entire community, <laughs> which I, I don't think many of us would be, be willing to do, but ask them to pray for him and they receive it in a certain way. And this is also something very important. And it comes up again in some of the, the later stories uh, that they receive it with this kind of tenderness and gentleness, not in a condemning way or driving him out of the monastery, but they, they receive it and pray for him. And we'll find this expressed more even explicitly in some of the coming stories. But, uh, you know, I think, again, it's, there's a problem with the kind of the individualism that we have in our spiritual life and a disconnect with, from each other and the support that we can give each other in the spiritual life. And so we often will, will not talk uh, to those with whom we are close or we know are living the spiritual life about the things that we are struggling with. And we rarely will ask them anything about the spiritual life. You remember one of the councils was when we greet somebody, you know, we typically will say, how are you doing? Or but what we should really ask is, how's your prayer life? You know, how are things going in your relationship with God? Because in the end, this is the thing that endures. And this is what we should care about most for ourselves and for, for others as well. So how's your prayer life going, everybody? Okay. <laughs> Come on, don't be shy. <laughs> I see. <laughs> so, but, you know, the, the immediate freedom, you know, this not giving any care to embarrassment, and I think this is something that we move toward over the course of time. Frequent confession, I think, begins to free, it, free us from it because there we have this such a concrete and tangible encounter with Christ and, and the grace and the mercy that he offers us that it creates a kind of freedom within us and a longing, I think, to be free of, of the thoughts or that we have or the, the sins that we've committed. And the more that we have confidence in his presence there, I think the freer, the freer we become. Another brother fought in the same manner against fornication and struggled in the most intense asceticism, thereby protecting himself so that he might not fall to this desire. However, since the battle would not cease, he went to the church and made known to all the gathering the fight which consumed him. So the presbyters gave a command, and everyone toiled for one week for his sake, praying to God. And indeed, the brother was released from his struggle. This is what I was talking about. You know, the sort of the, the love, the care, the tenderness that uh, they're here in this radical openness to an entire gathering within the church. He makes a public confession in front of everyone. And the presbyter's response uh, is not to tell him, oh, come back later, do that privately, but to encourage the community, entire community to receive it as if it was their own struggle and to give an entire week of prayer on, on his behalf. And I think uh, a story like this sort of compels us to ask, you know, are, are we as concerned about the spiritual welfare of the other as much as we are of our own spiritual welfare? And are we willing to do this and to pray for others in this fashion, you know, embrace this, you know, this was a week of prayer from everybody in the entire gathering uh, for, for the, this young man's sake. And, you know, do we have that willingness? You know, we often will tell people, I'm praying for you, or I'll pray for you. But how many people believe that we actually do? And how often do we actually do what we say we're going to do? You know, because it can become one of those things that we say for people who are struggling or going through a trial, I'll pray for you, which might mean in our minds sort of good thoughts, but do we really pray for them 
you know, how many tchotchkes do we say, you know, or rosaries do we say, you know, or how many days of fasting do we offer for people who are going through trials or deep illness and, and need strength. And so these kind of stories are, are really profound in my mind, you know, both the courage of this young man, but the willingness of those who are gathered with him to do battle with him, to enter into that warfare. Okay. I won't encourage anybody to do that here tonight. I won't stop you if you want to do that, but okay. Number three. Yet another brother was attacked by the temptation of fornication. It was the middle of the night, but he nonetheless immediately got up and went to the elder and confessed his thought to him. The elder comforted him with spiritual words, and the brother, having been benefited, returned to his cell. But again the battle was raised up against him. The monk, without even a second thought, fled to the elder again, and having been comforted, returned a second time to his cell. From then on, as many times as he was troubled, he went straight away to the elder without hesitating at all. And the elder received him willingly, supported him with counsel and comforting words. And as he led him back to his cell, instructed him not to lose courage, but always when he sensed the approach of carnal warfare, to come to him and to confront the assault of this demon. For nothing so effectively forces the demon of fornication to take flight, the elder would say, as do the reproach of sin and the clear confession made with humility and faith. Thereafter, since the situation had gone for a long time, God, seeing the perseverance of the besieged brother and the patience of the elder, allowed this struggle to leave the brother. Now, this struck me because I think if a spiritual father had anyone who was calling him multiple times during the day or during the night because he was being embattled, that he would be probably be told that he's being scrupulous and not to be concerned about it and to stop bothering me and the spiritual father would turn his phone off <laughs> and, and go to sleep. Uh, but it's interesting, you know, Philip Neary, who have often brought up read Climacus and read the fathers, and he made himself similarly accessible that any time of the day or night, someone could come to confession if they needed it. And, uh, and so what is beautiful about this is that the elder does not scorn him or push him away or treat him as if it's an irritation, but welcomes him, consoles him, offers him counsel each time. And it's because of the two things, the perseverance of the young man in the spiritual battle, but the patience of his elder that ultimately brings the healing. And so again, it's not just the struggle of the young man and not even his humility in acknowledging what he's struggling with, but also the patience of the elder in treating him so tenderly that he was able to receive the young man's struggle, in, offer him you know, this tender guidance and pray for him. It is all these things together that, that bring about kind of healing. So again, we see this deep you know, intimacy, personalism, you know, uh, unity in the spiritual battle, made present within these stories. Any thoughts or comments on this hypothesis? Ambrose, little, no, no, it's okay. Accompaniment, yes. Uh, that would be the more modern term. Uh, accompaniment, you know, that we, it's, you know, I think it's a term being used and perhaps you know, not understood as well as it should be. And I think this is why reading the fathers would help even flesh a term out like that. You know, maybe this is something, a way that our time and generation would understand things. Uh, but I think if they had the fathers and the wisdom that we uh, just read uh, to, to guide and shape that, then it would become something very powerful, you know, to move away from this individualistic pursuit of the spiritual life and acknowledge our responsibility 
for others and their spiritual well-being. Any final thoughts or comments on this hypothesis? Okay, very good. We're going to move on to 21, which I've been stressing the importance of. Uh, We're to look for fathers who are discerning and not entrust them to just anyone, our thoughts, that is, how we are to confess and what we should ask our confessors, what faith we should place in the answers of the fathers, and how through this faith we should work together with our confessors for the achievement of the good. So again, following on the theme that we've already talked about, working together with our confessor for the good. From the Drontcon, two brothers who lived separately decided to visit each other. One of them said to the other, I want to go to Father Abazino to confide to him a certain thought of mine. And I want to do the same, answered the other. So each one went to Abazino to confess his particular thought. The first, having confessed, fell at the feet of the elder and with effusive tears implored the elder to pray to God for for him. The elder said to him, go and do not transgress any longer, criticize no one, and do not be negligent in your prayer. The brother went away and was healed. The other brother, after he had related his thought to the elder, mentioned casually and with no desire for correction, Father, pray for me. He did not, moreover, make this request without, with any commitment or agony of soul. I'll come back to that here in a little bit. I thought that was sort of an interesting little way of phrasing it. After a little time had passed, the brothers again visited each other. One of them said, when we visited Abazino, did you reveal to him the thought which you said you wished to tell him? Yes, answered the other. Then were you benefited by that confession? The first brother once again asked. Certainly, by the prayers of the elder, God healed me. I, the first responded, even though I confessed, did not gain any healing. Why not? What did the elder ask? What what did you ask of the elder? I told him, pray for me, because I am tortured by this thought. During the confession of my thought, the other brother said, I wet his feet with my tears and with soulful pain begged him to pray for me. Indeed, by his prayers, God has healed me. This was told to us by the elder, who also told us that one who consults one of the fathers in order to be released from his temptations must ask with, with this with all his heart and with pain. He who confesses in a formal way only and casually or tests the spiritual father not only is not benefited, but is even condemned. So, you know, the, the, the first came, you know, or, and, you know, he asked for the prayers, but he does not acknowledge them and what they are. And simply in this casual way, he asked the father to, to pray for him. And we're told without any commitment or agony of soul. You know, there's no uh, mourning for his sin, no contrition or no striving uh, to enter by the narrow door. And so there's not an, an effort being made on his part to really acknowledge his sin fully before the elder. And, you know, as we hear further on in the paragraph, you know, that this is worthy of a kind of condemnation because not only is it being done without uh, any kind of humility or any kind of tradition, uh, uh, contrition, but it's it's also kind of putting the, the elder to the test, you know, that somehow he would see and understand what he's struggling with without it being acknowledged in truth. And so in a way, he's being a liar. He's not putting forward all that he is struggling with and withholding something from the elder. And it's for this reason that he, again, receives no benefit, but also uh, brings upon himself greater greater sin than uh, when he first came to the elder because of, of acting in this way. So, you know, the first, the, uh, the other wets the, the, the feet of the elder with his tears, that there was a true mourning for his sin and a true acknowledgement 
uh, of it and before the elder. And so uh, he comes to know the elder's healing. So not only did he acknowledge it, but he, he showed how, how deeply his sorrow, how deep his sorrow was for having committed it. So a very powerful story for us, because I think we, we know that part of going to confession is contrition, you know, true sorrow for one's sin. But uh, I think in some ways we really fail to talk about that and what that looks like and how one fosters that within the heart, uh, this kind of mourning uh, for our sin, this acknowledgement of the impact, the consequence that it has for us and our relationship with God. And, you know, the deeper our love for God becomes and where we see how this, um, how we sin against this love, this perfect love that has been given to us, is when the, the tears begin to emerge and emerge freely. And the fact that we, we don't foster this in terms of spiritual formation, I think is problematic because then it does lead people to go to confession, I think in this kind of pro forma way or utilitarian way that go acknowledge what one is struggling with, but not necessarily with contrition, nor with the intent not to enter into the sin again. The, the desire and the will, the agony of soul that leads that one would enter into in order to take hold of the grace that is given to us by God, in order to fight that battle fully, knowing that God gives us everything that we need to engage in that spiritual battle. And so if we aren't communicating that, uh, not, not in a way to shame people, but leading them into this kind of intimacy with God, uh, that they begin to see that there is something precious that is lost there and that should be most desired in this life. And if one has a true realization of that, then one is going to mourn for it, whether it is great or small. And we need to find ways, I think, to be able to communicate that. And I think, uh, you know, in our day and age, you know, this past Sunday was the, the Sunday also commemorating, I'm just learning these, feast days now and these commemorations, but of, of the Holy Fathers of the First Council of Nicaea. And, uh, you know, it was dealing with, you know, uh, Arius and the Arian heresy and, you know, the, the, the struggle, the suffering, the exile, that so many of the saints endured, you know, in the face of that, that 90% of the church had been led astray the St. Jerome's famous quote was that the world awakened and groaned to find itself Aryan. And, uh, you know, part of what uh, s s struck me there uh, in it was, you know, the, this willingness of those to engage in the spiritual battle, the, the willing to uh, suffer for it that eventually the heresy is conquered, at least for a time. I think heresies begin to emerge again and again over the course of time in different ways. But in our day, and this is the point that I was getting, getting to, I'm sorry, I sort of was rambling there a little bit, but there is no discussion in our day. You know, in the generation where, where Arianism arose, you know, it was a culture that still believed in the spiritual and the mystical. And uh, we live in a time and a generation where, you know, there's, you know, this kind of rationalism, materialism, nihilism, you know, where truth is what you, either there is no truth at all, or truth is what you determine it to be. And so there is no discussion about things uh, with individuals, something far more profound I think has to take place and it's experience, the experience of Christ, the experience of the truth that people, is the only thing that's really going to move people toward faith. You know, it's not going to be talking them 
into it. And you know, overcoming heresy isn't through theological discussion. That might be some part or some element of it, but it's really through this depth of conversion by becoming Christ, by becoming saints, through what we receive in the Holy Eucharist and through the gift of the Holy Spirit. This is what our generation needs in a, in a profound way, that those who are living the, the faith life in a radical fashion and holding nothing back of themselves. Uh, and that might sound, you know, to be rather extreme, but, you know, I, I don't think we have to look too far to see that. You know, everything going on in our culture and the, the church itself has done a pretty good job in discrediting itself and making itself irrelevant within, within the world. And so what the church and the world needs are saints. And, uh, and I think we need this kind of clarity, both in terms of our own spiritual life, but what is being communicated, you know, what priests communicate from the pulpit and what parents communicate to their children. That our most, the most important thing for us is to become what God has made us to be and made possible for us. Daniel. Sorry, I'm having a hard time like putting this question together in my head, but um, so in this, the one brother says, pray for me because as he says in here, he's tortured by this thought. Mm -hmm. The other one, and that's kind of like the bad example in this, right. where the good example is the one who um, says, I wet his feet with my tears and with soulful pain, begged for him to pray for me. Right. But so I guess my question is something along the lines of, you know, like, I think it was in Isaac. I'm pretty sure it's in the latter and just kind of in general. I know you've mentioned it before, too. You know, like tears aren't something that the other brother forced out. It's not like he put on a good enough show right. or something, you know, and and so the soulful pain that he has is not um, something he generates in a sense on his own, but right. it's something that that's like a grace from God even. Whereas it seems like the other brother also recognizes a battle and would, and wants Maybe I, I, I mean, maybe it's like he hasn't come to the point of wanting freedom from that battle as much as his brother, mm -hmm. but it, it, but it's not. And maybe that's like, what is the cause between the difference in their approach or something? Yeah, but I like, mean, it's not his, I guess my, where I'm going with this is, is he says after that, that um, not only is not benefited, but is even condemned. And I guess I'm just kind of struggling with it because my how how can you he can't how how do you how do you condemn some someone then if he can't he's not he's he wouldn't even be asked to like generate his own tears so to say if that makes sense right like that would be seen as a grace of god in the first place so it's like the lack of the lack of maybe not having received the same grace as his brother does that make sense oh okay this is, was my thought you know, and listening to that there is a lack and it's a lack of desire and a lack of a desire for God. And, you know, it is that desire for God and to be pleasing to him, but also to live in this relationship of intimacy with him that drives us forward in the spiritual life. You know, it's always relational for us. You know, as you said, it's not just about functionally producing these tears and that somehow magically then you know that makes us worthy of forgiveness what he lacked was this desire for for god and true desire for healing uh you know that he might experience the frustration the pain of it the shame of it but that's still not the same as uh mourning the the loss of that intimacy with god uh, or desiring, truly desiring healing within our hearts. You know, we can love and hate the same thing at the same time. 
we are people of contradiction. And, you know, part of that is seen in the story of this one, one young man is that he comes to the elder, but it's all, it's a kind of feigned repentance. He comes and he asks the, you know, casually and to ask the <clears throat> elder to pray for him, but it's, it's not a true repentance. He does not confess and acknowledge the particular sin, nor does he truly mourn for it. And so it's not even a matter of producing the tears, but there's a lack of real contrition there or a lack of real desire uh, to be freed from it and not to have it within one's life moving forward. And so, you know, I think that's in, in humility, we have to acknowledge that often we see that same kind of you know, that we bear those contradictions within us. We can love and hate the same thing at the same time. In fact, we hear Paul talk about that. I do the very thing that I hate. And, uh, and so we have to get to that point that we acknowledge that, that there's a part of us that, that loves the pleasure of particular sins and is attached to, to it. And that's worthy of mourning in and of itself, that our attachment to the satisfaction of tied to the sin is greater than our attachment to God and our love for him and our desire to please him. And, you know, it is the acknowledgement of that that leads us, you know, more and more to rely upon the, the, the grace of God. Because even if we were to acknowledge in this circumstance, the lack, if he, you know, went to the elder and said, I'm besieged by these thoughts, but there's also a part of me that holds on to them, or that I, I really have this sense, lack of a sense that I'm, I'm really even going to strive, that I'm going to fall back into them again. You know, that in a sense would be a more truthful confession. You know, he's not casually, he would not be casually entering into it at that point. He would be acknowledging the even greater struggle the fact that he, you know, lacks the contrition and that he's tied to it deeply and that he lacks the sorrow that would produce the tears. So you're right, you know, over the course of time, that desire might grow and develop. And it might be through even through an experience like this, where he sees a brother monk being healed and why he was healed because of his acknowledgement of his sin openly, directly, and then having this kind of pain of soul that is reflective of his love of God. You know, again, desire is such an important thing in the writings of the fathers. And we saw that, especially if you remember in, uh, Isaac the Syrian, coming back to it again and again, that this, the, you know, that our desire for God is what drives the ascetic life and the, the discipline that we embrace, not simply the, the desire to be, you know, to see ourselves as free of particular sins or of being holy, but our desire to enter into that relationship with God fully, knowing that he, in him alone, do we find fullness. Rachel. Okay, is that... Okay, to me, tears of this sort seems to be a source of scandal for some in the West, where they are questioned and looked upon as hysterics or a lack of humility or lack of trust in God's mercy, an absence of the peace of the Holy Spirit. I don't actually believe there is a problem with the theology of holy repentance in the West, but that it, it is a misinterpretation of the different manifestations of true repentance in the spiritual life. It is an idea of what repentance must look like. And right now that seems to be like a, a knee-jerk stoic reaction to the nihilist culture we find ourselves surrounded by. The focus by some faithful on keeping it together, hold on for a second, in a stoic-like manner can even encourage and foster an irreverent confession at best because if one is caught crying, then it may be viewed with suspicion. I do not mean to criticize, but only mean to point out the perception I have encountered, even in myself, that one must have this stone-faced spiritual life 
coupled with an alloy joy we pray against an alloy joy right it makes me wonder when one realizes as god reveals himself to one's own capacity that we are a child of god one would not be able to help but have a copious tears of repentance right you know i think uh it's not talked about i did not hear about tears or the gift of tears until i did read the fathers uh, it's not talked about typically when someone is talking about the spiritual life or the life of prayer. And uh, I think often it would be seen as histrionic or again, or again, maybe be labeled as a kind of scrupulosity, you know, that, or that one is not trusting in the grace and the mercy of God rather than it being a reflection of one's repentance uh and uh and deep contrition for one's sin and so again i think you know there is this sense uh of not really wanting to show it's an odd thing in our culture because there is this constant emoting you know in this very public form over all these different things and people will talk about that uh, commercial raising money for dogs where uh, who's that famous singer uh, her song is in the background and you know they show all these you know pathetic pictures of you know dogs that need help uh, I forget the name of the singer but you know in in certain forms it's accepted or appropriate but when it comes to the spiritual life uh, I think there is this sense that it is to be avoided or that if they do emerge, uh, then it's problematic. But, you know, in the confessional, there are constant tears and a priest is not a stoic. And so much of your time is spent deeply immersed in the struggle of those that you are, are engaging in the sacrament. And, you know, I've known priests, you know, uh, someone asked a priest about that at one point, and he said, oh, you know, I, I weep every single day with people within the confessional. And I think we've privatized it in that sense, you know, because of the, the nature of our confession, and it's not talked about in terms of our spiritual life as a whole. And because I think our view of repentance, too, has narrowed down to uh, you know, sorrow over sin and going to confession, rather living in this constant state of repentance, of turning toward God and away from sin. And so having this kind of sorrow of soul that's talked about in, in these uh, stories is again, again, I think not a part of the narrative for us. And again, I think that's why reading the, the lives of the saints or these stories from the fathers, it awakens something within us to make us question, how, how deeply am I entering into that relationship? And, you know, does my love for God have this impact upon my heart? And does it bring forward uh, from my heart, you know, both the desire for conversion of life, but the sorrow over, over the sin and the sin against love in particular? And so Eric Williams wrote, I or wait, a couple others came in here. Ambrose, for a long time, I was puzzled by the great saints who would belabor their sinfulness, even with many tears. It sort of came across to me as somehow over the top, maybe too much, extra, as we say these days. But I think that it is their great understanding of the perfect love and goodness of God the good things God wants for, for, to bestow upon us, and how even our lesser imperfections can cause us to lose out on the fullness of what God wishes to bless us with. Absolutely. And the over, over the top, extra, you know, fanatic, uh, may, maybe in a harsher way would be put out there, you know, that you're taking things just a little too seriously. Come on now, you know, pull, your, pull, yourself, pull yourself together. Eric says, I suspect that, that tears of repentance would be regarded as foreign uh, to a sense of Rome, Romatos. Well, when in Rome, sigh. I don't say that approvingly. Um, yeah, uh, uh, 
again, I, I, I don't want to be overly critical here because I think we have to acknowledge that there has been a kind of disconnect, you know, whether it's among Eastern or Western Christians from the spiritual tradition. And so, you know, being exposed to this and not only reading about it, but I think having it be a constant uh, part of our spiritual journey and something that's talked about and where repentance is cultivated in a very deep fashion, it's going to seem foreign. And again, I think this is why we, we go back to the fathers, that it does, it becomes a part of our whole mindset, the formation of our heart and the, of our spiritual life as a whole. The, what we're reading here begins to shape the way that we view this relationship with God and how we enter into it. That doesn't happen overnight. You know, I think in some ways we have to overcome our own uh, hesitancy in that regard, you know, our own un unwillingness even to think about that, you know, in the sense of how deep is our, our contrition? Do we have a sense of compunction over the things that we struggle with? And, you know, I think for a priest to be able to do this well, too, is one who has to be going to confession frequently and regularly himself. You know, how do you help cultivate this in the hearts of others if it's not the reality for yourself? Okay. Any other thoughts, final thoughts for the evening? Rachel, I just want to point out that when one is truly striving by the grace of God, even and especially tears are brought before the Lord. I mean to say that one doesn't relish in crocodile tears when one truly desires to please God. Right. And John Climacus, you know, it's, it's nice that we'll have this pairing between the Evergatinos and the Ladder of Divine Ascent because John has a whole section dedicated to tears. And he's careful to say that, you know, if one does not have them, it doesn't necessarily mean that there's a problem, you know, that the, this particular gift in large measure might not be given to all, you know, that what is most important is the compunction within one's heart and sorrow for that sin. And if tears are given, then, then all, all, you know, all is good, but to not have them, one shouldn't necessarily think that there's something problematic because they can't be forced. Okay, that was a lot of territory tonight. So uh, we're at 8.38 and we'll stop there and pick up next week. So thank you all. And uh, hopefully we'll be regular from this point on too with all the groups. All right, so when we close with the Our Father, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. And when God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Go in peace. Thanks be to God. Be to God. Thank you all. Thanks be to God. Have a wonderful week. Thank you. Thank you for That's all it. your comments. Thank you, Father. You. Pray for me.